Hello, and welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. I'm going to get a bit personal for a moment. Just one month ago, my 27-year-old nephew committed suicide. There were some warning signs, and close family members were trying to give him as much support as possible and try to get him some help. No one ever thought he would actually kill himself. We're all still in disbelief, and each of us wonders what we could have done to help him, what signs we should have picked up on, what we might have said when we were with him, how we could have gotten him the professional help he needed. It's too late for my nephew, but not for someone else. Maybe someone you care about. To give us some insight into suicide and some guidance on what to do or not to do if someone is suicidal is Dr. Mark Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist and is the medical director at Sweetser, a comprehensive behavioral care organization in Maine for children, adults, and families. Thank you for being here, Dr. Kaplan. So tell me, can you really predict who is at risk for suicide? Hello, Diane. First of all, I'm really uh, grateful to have the opportunity to be here with you today. Um, my personal condolences for the loss of your nephew. Thank you. Yes. Now, in regards to, um, we don't have any sort of uh, testing to 100% predict who is at risk for suicide. So, what we've learned over the years from, you know, lots of research, because as you know, in psychiatry, um, suicidality is the ultimate emergency. If you work in an emergency department, it could be myocardial infarctions, it could be a brittle diabetic going into diabetic ketoacidosis. In psychiatry, it's suicidality. So that's really where the bulk of research has gone. And so we've identified some very strong risk factors for suicidality. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to train primary care physicians, uh, social workers in public schools, emergency room physicians, on how to do a quick and accurate assessment for suicidality. But it's really also important information for families to learn about, because although they're not mental health professionals, they're the ones that are going to be most worried about a family member that they think is at risk for suicidality. And they may need to go through some of these risk factors in their own mind, even to uh, feel the confidence to try to get professional help. Well, let's run down some of the more common risk factors. Absolutely. So first off, and you know, this really wouldn't be any surprise, but um, the greatest risk factor is a person that actually has a diagnosable mental illness, be it a mood disorder, such as major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, but What's really important here is that in addition to the mood disorders, folks that would have severe post-traumatic stress disorder, other anxiety disorders, a new onset of a psychotic disorder such as schizophrenia, and of course, patients with significant substance abuse. So substance abuse plus a different mental health diagnosis confers the greatest risk possibly, but we have people that just have no history of a mood disorder, but who struggle with substance abuse and 
they end up dying as well from suicide. I'd like to ask you a question for a second here. So is somebody more likely to attempt suicide or commit suicide if they are using a substance at that moment? Absolutely. So um, what's very, very common is an individual with, with depression, and then they'll go ahead and drink alcohol to excess or smoke even a lot of marijuana or possibly abuse opiates, anything that is considered to be a central nervous system depressant because the part of our brain that allows us to um, make choices, think about what we're doing, the central nervous system depressants will shut down that part of our brain, which is our prefrontal cortex, and all of a sudden we may actually act out on things and do things that we wouldn't normally do. That's why people will often do many things they regret while intoxicated, and once they sober up, they're you know very ashamed about what they did. So what we have to do in emergency room situations, if someone comes in talking about suicide and they're intoxicated, we have to wait until, if it's alcohol, till their blood alcohol level drops. We keep them safe, of course, but we wait until they're sober to conduct an accurate um, clinical exam to determine really what their risk is. Okay, so these are the two major risk factors, um, a mental illness, right. substance abuse, and oftentimes you'll see them, they're, what are they, they're, there's a name for it, um, they're co-occurring. Yes, co-occurring disorders, the, the, the mental illnesses, and if you think of substance abuse as separate from mental illnesses, which we tend to categorize them that way, we call that a co-occurring illness for sure. Now, some other things to be aware of, um, if you have had a family member that has attempted suicide or completed suicide, that escalates your risk as well. And that we found clinically actually can escalate the risk, but it could also be protective in that sense that on one hand, somebody may come to believe that it's a family sanctioned way to deal with a significant problem you have. So if somebody's uncle committed suicide or one of their parents, they may think, well, you know, I can do that too because that's how my uncle or one of my parents dealt with the problem. However, on the flip side, it can actually be protective because if a person was really, really hurt and distraught because a family member committed suicide, they may say to themselves, I will never, ever put one of my loved ones through that experience. Right, because it is a horrific experience. But in, the, in that moment for the person, everything shuts down, even whether they're on substances or not. But isn't that yes. what happens? Just everything shuts down and all they see is what's right in front of them. So, so regardless of the etiology, you know, at the, at the end of the day, when somebody is really committing suicide, you know, they are at that moment clinically depressed. Their thinking is very distorted and they're looking at the world through you know, just negative, negative colored glasses, if there is such a thing, you know, the, the, they lose that ability to have a balanced perspective of their existence. And one of the things that 
family members can do. First of all, here's where it gets to be a real um, potential trap for family members. Number one, um, nobody wants to believe that one of your family members is mentally ill. And nobody really wants to believe that they're sick to the point where they may kill themselves. Okay, It's a really hard um, thing to accept, especially if you're a parent with a child. Or, but it could be a spouse, could be you're a child and your parent is suicidal. So, you know, our own defense mechanisms are such that we just don't want to believe that a family member is capable of that. So that in itself clouds our judgment, and it should. I mean, we're not objective when it comes to family members. So trying to get information like this out, that's why I really appreciate having the opportunity to, um, to do this podcast with you is critically important because um, having this information for families, it just may help them uh, by providing some, uh, just some unbiased factual information that they can lean on at a time when they're so worried about a family member that their own judgment is very clouded. And one of the things a lot of family members are scared about is they're afraid that if they ask their loved one, are you thinking of killing yourself? That somehow it's like putting ideas into their loved one's head. They're very, very concerned about that. And we've even found professionals, mental health professionals, or those in other aspects of physical health care, get worried about that as well. It's almost like they don't want to speak to the elephant that's right in the room. So they avoid sometimes asking the person directly, you know, are you suicidal? You know, tell me more about that. Because they're afraid of putting ideas into people's heads. So I just want to, first and foremost, encourage anybody that's in a situation with a family member to, um, to ask that question, because it will certainly help them in terms of being able to provide information to healthcare professionals, emergency room professionals, when they really know what's going on with their loved one. Now, their loved ones may not feel safe or comfortable opening up to their family member, and then we can talk about other signs you look for, for sure. But we have to be able to ask. And the second thing I'm gonna say is, when you have a mentally ill family member, especially someone that has not shown signs or symptoms of mental illness in the past, you can feel that you got nowhere to turn. You can feel ashamed. You can feel ashamed for the family member to some degree. You, again, with that, sometimes as a family member being being biased, you may not want to ask for help because you think it's somehow being intrusive to your family member. Um, and I just want to set all that aside and destigmatize this. Somebody that's depressed and mentally ill, they need help and it can feel very isolating to that person and to the family, especially if the person is saying, no, I don't want help, or I'll be fine tomorrow. At some point, the family member needs to call a crisis hotline and just get some coaching, some support, and some information about what the best way to proceed is. Right, because I know in, in our family, there were family members who were reaching out and one thing is you, you really don't know what you're supposed to say or not no. say. And um, it's easy to, to freeze up. 
and you can say the wrong thing and have the opposite effect that you're hoping you'll have. Um, I, and I respect that, but I wanted, I, I just want to unburden people from thinking that if somebody is very depressed and the three stages we look for whenever we're doing clinical interviews, we ask somebody if they're having any thoughts of suicide. If they endorse that, the next thing we want to ask them about is, are they thinking about actually doing it? So to what degree are they intending to do it? And then we get really concerned when they can tell us that they have an elaborate plan. Okay, so we look for suicidal ideation, which is the thinking, intent, meaning I'm thinking about it and I'm going to do it, and then what is the plan? Okay, that's where we get very concerned. But my point is, there's really not a lot you can say that's wrong to somebody who's in that place. Okay, and, and I don't want people to feel like if I say the wrong thing, my loved one is going to follow through and kill themselves. Okay. I don't want anybody to feel guilty about that or, or have it prevent them from trying to get help for their loved one. Right. Because I, when I was doing a little research for our interview, I came across a couple of questions you shouldn't ask. And I, I thought of what you just said. My gosh, how, how in the moment can you remember what you're not supposed to say? Yeah. But it said, don't try to argue or talk the person out of doing it. So why would Okay, so explain. Well, again, it's more than at that point when somebody is really intent on killing themselves. As I mentioned before, it's almost like they have a delusional way of thinking that's overcome them. So you can't rationalize with someone that's delusional. Can't do it. Now, what you can do, and the whole reason that um, emergency rooms exist and psychiatric hospitals exist, is because they provide safe containment for someone, a safe place where the person who's at risk of suicide and maybe even has a plan is observed closely where they won't have access to things that they could use to harm themselves. And they can get lots of um, unbiased professionals working with them on a daily basis. But at the end of the day, they, they are in a safe, well-controlled environment. So trying to um, do this in your own home, thinking that you can just talk somebody out of it, a person may simply tell you what it is you want to hear because a lot of people well let me just um mention this when we talk about protective factors and that's really really important to think about those as well when i've worked with depressed patients and often ask them um why is it that you are what are you living for what are you staying alive for they'll often mention my children or my mother or my pet Okay, some things that are critically important to them and that they wouldn't want a, their pet to go without their care or they wouldn't want their child to be without a mother or father or they wouldn't want their mother or father to be without their child. So these are the protective things. So um, if somebody's really hell-bent on killing themselves, though, and their mother or child is asking them or trying to talk them out of it, they may, in their pain, they may just say 
to that family member exactly what the family member wants to hear. You know, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. And in some way, they may say that just to get that person off their back, so to speak. I, I think that's partly what happened in my nephew's case. Yeah. Is he, he said things, in retrospect, things that he knew his family members would want to hear. To Absolutely. put their minds at rest when, in fact, he had the plan all worked out. Absolutely. And again, for many people, once they get to the, that place where they're really contemplating killing themselves, they do, if they create an elaborate plan, it is always secretive. And that's when we hope that if they attempt to kill themselves, they won't be successful and, you know, someone will discover them and then they can get help in a, in a sense after the fact. But if they're not revealing a plan, then we have to look at other things. We have to look at, you know, what are some other things that are going on with that person that will escalate the risk. And if someone is just talking more about not being alive, okay? Mm -hmm. If you see the signs and symptoms of severe clinical depression, and for many people with severe clinical depression, there are physiological changes that occur with that person. Um, it does induce a sort of anorexia where they're not hungry very often. Of course, some people may overeat when they're very depressed, but we really worried about somebody that's where it's very evident that they're not eating, they're losing lots of weight, when um, it's very evident that they've lost interest in, in activities that are previously pleasurable to them, their concentration is looking very impaired. If they're isolating more, which kind of goes along with losing interest in things, especially if they were uh, typically fairly social people. If they're unable to focus on things that they previously were able to do, even if they weren't things that were of great interest to them, just things you have to do every day just to function. Um, I recall one situation uh, clinically where we got very concerned because somebody brought in a copy of their will to show the therapist that they were. And what was concerning about that is because the patient had been talking about being very, very depressed. And if that wasn't a cry for help, I don't know what was. She brought in a copy of her will. And, um, you know, we have to also, we instruct people, especially with teenagers, you know, be aware of what they're posting on social media. Because very often people for some reason via social media or via texting which many can people communicate that way they somehow feel that they can reveal things that they wouldn't necessarily say if they were staring at you face to face having a a non-virtual conversation so what do you do in those circumstances you know you're on facebook and you see a friend has posted something and it worries you yeah. Well, you, do. you know, if, if it depends to what extent it is, but um, in that situation, most people would, if it's a Facebook thing, they might attempt to contact that person immediately via Facebook or call them or message them and just say, what's going on? But then if you don't get any response, hopefully you may know something about this person, like who their family members are, who can you contact, you know? to say, I'm really worried about so-and-so, could you check up on them? 
And then if somebody posts something very provocative and, you know, goodbye, everyone, I'm a failure, you know, something that's that blatant. Um, even if you don't know much, if you know where the person lives, that's, you know, that's a 911 call to say so-and-so just posted this on Facebook. It's very concerning. Um, and this is where I, this is their name. And I believe this is where they live. Okay. And, you know, emergency response services, people are very um, skilled at getting the information they need to quickly intervene in those situations. So I think a lot of people might be reluctant to take that step, thinking that they're sticking their noses in or whatever, or that, oh, the person really can't mean this. And, you know, especially somebody who maybe who has threatened to commit suicide several times in the past and has never done anything. Really, really good point. So there are a lot of people that have what we call personality disorders. And for some of those folks, they feel that they have to go to extremes to get attention from people. And very often they'll, they'll um, express what we call parasuicidal behaviors where they will harm themselves in ways that they know are not lethal, but you know, it's, it's, it's their way of, or, or they, their belief, it's distorted belief. It's the only way they can get attention from someone or get someone to do what they want them to do, this kind of thing. But what we've learned in our field is we have to take those situations extraordinarily seriously as well, because very often someone that's exhibited power suicidal behaviors might make a mistake. And instead of taking, you know, a few dosages of a medicine in excess, they may take the whole bottle thinking, eh, you know, I'll be fine. Even if somebody doesn't have like a personality disorder, um, threatening suicide could be somebody's cry for help because they- Oh, all the they... time. Absolutely. Absolutely. But remember, it may not be so much, it may not come out as a threat. It may come out more as, more subtly, which is, you know, I'll never be successful. I'm always going to be hopeless. Why should I keep living? You know, what's the point of living? So it may not be a threat, so to speak, like to somebody, you know, when I think of a threat, I think of, you know, unless you give me this car, I'm going to kill myself. You know, that's more like a threat um, or leave me alone or else I'll kill myself. And, I, you know, when I work with teenagers a lot, what I found is many, we remember, we take every statement about suicidality seriously. Everyone gets the same set of questions. Everyone gets a proper evaluation. But what I found many times is adolescents, be, they'll be angry at their parents for setting a limit. And in the context of that, they may say, well, I'm just going to kill myself then. Because in an adolescent mind, and this, again, distorted thinking, but this is what happens. You know, if you take away their phone for a week and ground them, to them, in that moment, it may feel like the end of the world, okay? So, but they may not really mean they're going to kill themselves, but they're going to try to manipulate, mm -hmm. try to get their phone back. But my point is, we don't, since we don't have any sort of, you know, clinical tools that can immediately assess who's serious and who isn't, now, it doesn't mean everyone gets admitted to a hospital, but everyone in these situations that comes to the attention of a professional will get, you know, a proper clinical exam.
And speaking of the clinical signs, there is research going on right now, isn't there, to identify biomarkers, maybe brain scan or blood test to see? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How how would that work? It's rather fascinating. So um, everyone is, you know, the Human Genome Project has been going on now for many years. And really what that looks at is, you know, what are these genes that we have and what happens when a certain gene has a mutation. So remember, our genes did not only determine our eye color and, um, and things like that, but they also ultimately determine how our body regulates itself. So there's research that really started at John Hopkins, but it's going on at some other centers as well. And there was a kind of a, an exciting initial paper published about this back in 2014 in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and it talked about that that researchers at John Hopkins had isolated a mutation on a particular gene, and that particular um, uh, mutation, so to speak, makes it difficult for some people to regulate certain neurochemicals that are secreted in their brains, okay? So one of the chemicals that we all need in our brains is what's called cortisol, and that's one of a number of chemicals that creates what's called our fight-or-flight response. So if we are subjected to something that's very frightening, let's say you're, you know, taking a leisurely walk in the woods and a bear jumps out, you know, you have two choices, and those fight or flight, and most people would hopefully flight, meaning they'll run away. So it's that, that you know, instant response to a threatening situation. So folks that have this mutation of this particular gene, they experience more cortisol through their brain. So it's as if they're experiencing danger and subjected to fight or flight just through everyday experiences. They have like a a much lower um, uh, trigger point to react in these ways. So they studied... Uh, blood samples and cerebral spinal fluid samples from people that completed suicide. And they found that there was a higher incidence of those people having this mutation in that particular gene. And then they interviewed 325 people. And when they do this type of interview, naturally they're interviewing them to learn about, do do they have depression, severe anxiety, suicidal thoughts, And they did find a high correlation between people that endorsed on interviews suicidal thinking and this particular gene mutation. So at this point, um, there's no genetic test that's ready for prime time, and it's not 100% foolproof. So it's not like every person that has this modified gene is going to be at greater risk for suicide. It really depends on many, many other factors. But... There's um, thinking that eventually it might be used as a screening tool, uh, say for people in the armed forces, as a way to determine um, who would be most vulnerable to suicidality, you know, uh, say following uh, a a deployment. Hmm. So, you know. A simple blood test. Simple blood test. and, And people are also thinking about it that it just may be part of a set of tools that like we already obviously have clinical interviews we do in emergency room settings and it may it may 
eventually uh, be a simple mouth swab to collect the DNA that you could do on site in emergency rooms. Again, it wouldn't prove or disprove whether that person's actually going to commit suicide, but it could be part of an overall assessment to predict risk. I want to make sure that we do cover the ground thoroughly about what we should do, friends mm-hmm. and family, if we're worried about somebody. Absolutely. So what what's the first thing that we do? We we talked about some of the warning signs and the risk yes. factors and now, you know, the rubber hits the road. We're we're very worried about somebody. Yeah. So we have a national suicide prevention hotline that is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five and really what's important is that you don't have to just make that call once you as a family member think you have you know every fact there is or have identified every risk factor you can make that call when you are on the fence when you're not sure when you maybe just want more information what do i do okay so in those situations, I'm, I would encourage people to strike when the iron is somewhat cold, okay? When they have some worries about their family member, but they're not sure, okay? That's a perfect time to reach out to somebody via a hotline to ask for help. Absolutely. And what I will also do is encourage um, your listeners to check their own state because many states and many counties and regions have their own crisis hotlines. And what I will do on my Catching Health blog is I'm going to list some of those resources um, when when I put up the podcast. Excellent. I will list these resources, um, the national hotline number and some of the individual states as well. Now, if you think that the person absolutely is in a crisis, you should Mm -hmm. call 911. Yes, if if they are if they've told you they've harmed themselves, or if that you have evidence, you see pill bottles lying around, you see evidence that they're bleeding because they've tried to self-inflict a wound. If they are telling you, "I'm going to kill myself," you know, when when you know, as soon as you go to sleep, I'm going to kill myself tonight and they're refusing to come with you for help, okay? Mm-hmm. Now let's talk for a minute if they say they wanna come for help. What do you do in those situations? Right. Safest bets are getting them to a local emergency room, okay? The closest hospital emergency room. Um, in the state of Maine, we have regional crisis teams that cover um, different counties, different areas, and those crisis teams spend a lot of time in the emergency departments evaluating people there, okay? So, so that's the safest bet if you can get them to go anywhere. Um, if you're really concerned for your family member, but not to the point where you think they may be at imminent risk, um, there are programs like Sweetser where we have, you know, Monday to Friday, we have walk-in access to get assessments from a mental health professional. So you don't have to schedule in advance. You can literally walk into any of our outpatient sites and get that evaluation. And 
on weekends, evenings, that's where somebody would go to the emergency room or call the state crisis line. Very often, mobile crisis workers can even come sometimes to someone's house to assess them. So it really depends on what the level of risk is. Clearly, if you're worried that your family members injured themselves or taken an overdose, then calling 911 and getting them involuntarily transported to an emergency room is really, really important. Okay. I, I didn't realize that you offered those assessments. I was going to wrap up our interview, and I wish we could talk for another half hour, actually, but I was going to wrap it up by asking you to um, tell us about some of the work that Sweetser does. Well, you know, one of the critical things that we've realized is people now are not just dying from intended suicide. In fact, the majority of deaths that we've had in our patient population within the last three years has sadly been unintentional overdosages from combining prescribed medicines with illicit street drugs. And really, it's all about opiates. Okay. And you know that the um, in Maine, for example, now, I think we're losing a person from an unintentional overdose every day, at least one person a day, which is really horrific. So <clears throat> what's critical here is these are people that aren't necessarily depressed or thinking about dying, but they just overdose and don't wake up because opiates combined with other central nervous system depressants, the way they kill people is they suppress the person's ability to breathe, and then they die. So we're focusing a lot of efforts right now on training all our clinical staff, crisis teams, everybody, in how to do better assessments for substance abuse. We're using uh, very um, sophisticated urine testing now um, on all of our patients to determine if somebody's actually using prescribed medicines or illicit street drugs such as heroin or other things that they wouldn't tell us about. We can detect them in the urine, which is critically important. So we're doing those things. Um, in terms of folks that are really talking about suicide, we're putting them now in a special, uh, for lack of a better word, it's like a, um, uh, we put them on a certain kind of registry, which automatically escalates the amount of clinical attention they're going to get. You know, we assess their level of risk factors, and um, if their level of risk factors is high, we make sure that we're offering that patient a lot more clinical contact. We try to wrap around that patient much more. To get more information about Sweetser, it's is it Sweetser.org? That's correct. Yes, it is. And it's sweet, like sweet? S yep. S-E-R. And I definitely think that you it's, and I need it's to... It's S-W-E-E-T-S-E-R. Right. Sweet, sir. And I was going to say that I think that you and I need to schedule a follow-up podcast to talk about the opiate problem. I'd be happy to do that. And I'm, again, very, very grateful uh, for spending this time together. Yes. And, you know, encourage anybody listening that's at all worried to, um, again, call their state crisis lines, come into one of our Sweetser programs, come into whatever mental health centers in their community, and to know that they're really not alone. Help is waiting. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan. I, I wish we could have had this conversation about suicide a lot sooner. Might have helped our family, but I'd like to think that you and I have been able to help some other families.
Well, that would be worth all the time we've spent together if we, if we, if we achieve that, for sure. And thank you so much. Okay. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Catching Health Podcast. If you have any questions about this segment or suggestions for future topics, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. For more health reporting that makes a difference, check out my blog at catchinghealth.com.